1886, Leo Tolstoy, a believer, wrote a short story, fictional, but a lot of it's true, not all of it. It's called The Repentant Sinner, and in this, a 70-year-old man who had lived all of his life as a profligate, who only had done bad things, there was not a single good deed on his account, was about to die, and on his deathbed, he repented. He said, Lord, forgive me as you forgave the thief on the cross. And then he passed away, and feeling love toward God and faith in God's mercy, he then approached the gates of heaven, and he appealed to get in. And the accuser, you know who that is, Satan stepped forward, and he listed all of his evil deeds and not one good deed among them. And a voice from the other side said, sinners such as you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, go away. And so the sinner asked, who is speaking? And it was Peter, the apostle. And the sinner appealed. He said, you of all people, you who fell asleep on the mountain and you who fell asleep twice in the garden and you who denied the Lord three times, you should understand. Please let me in. And it was followed by silence. A few minutes later, the old man then appealed again, and once again, the accuser stepped forward and listed all of his sins, and not one among them was good. And on the other side, there was another voice, different voice. And he said, sinners such as you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, go away. And the sinner asked, well, who is this speaking? And he said, this is the prophet and king, King David. And of course, then the sinner appealed again and said, well, you of all people, you who committed adultery with Bathsheba and stole the ewe lamb from Uriah and then had him murdered by putting him on the front lines of your army, you should understand. Please let me in. And of course, it was followed by what? Silence. He appealed again, and then the accuser stood forward, and he listed all of his sins and not one good deed among them. And a voice once again said, you may not enter, go away. And he asked, who is this? And it was John, the beloved, the disciple. And then the sinner's heart cheered. He said, Peter should have let me in because he understands. David should have let me in because he understands that we are all sinners. But surely you will let me in because you are the one that loves much. Isn't it you then that wrote that God loves us. And if we don't love God, if we don't love Him, then, of course, we don't know God. You of all people, because you love much, and in your old age, you said that we are to love one another. We're to love our brothers. Surely you will let me in. How can you look on me today with hatred? If you do, you must renounce everything that you wrote about loving your brother. The gate opened, and John welcomed him in into eternal life. Now, of course, that's not a perfect story. There's some things that are not biblical about it. It's not Peter who makes the decision. It's not David that makes the decision or John. And the other fact is we know there's not a single person that enters heaven that's not a sinner. We're none of us worthy. You know, the gospel of Mark begins with, in fact, the gospel about Jesus Christ. Isaiah had written that there is one who is going to be sent to come before you 
who is going to prepare the way of the Lord, and he's going to be calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so John the Baptist came baptizing in the desert, preaching a what? A baptism of repentance. And all the Judean countryside and everyone out of the city of Jerusalem came to him, and they were baptized in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John wore a coat made of camel's hair with a belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And this was his message. He said, After me there is one who is coming that is far greater than I. I am not worthy to stoop down and unlatch his sandals. You see, I baptize you with water, but he is going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus then, at that very time, he came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as he came up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, and he saw the Spirit descend upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And at once... Immediately, the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. You see, when John was put into prison, then Jesus went into Galilee. He started his ministry, and he began to preach. And he said this, the time has come, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This prologue from the Gospel of Mark tells the full background of our story today about repentance and believing. Jesus' baptism at that time, the Father then, of course, anoints the Son with the Holy Spirit as a sign that His ministry is beginning. And He affirms Him, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, as His living Son. And Jesus begins his ministry in submission to the Father, and his mission is to bring in the kingdom of God. The temptation is about this. Jesus, at that moment, puts Satan on notice. Your realm, your reign, your power is coming to an end. The kingdom of God is being brought in, and I'm here to bring it in. And it is inevitable the victory will be won. John's captivity, by his own admission, that was almost inevitable because he said what in the third chapter of the gospel of John he said I must do what I must decrease he must increase it reminds us also though that the good news of God the gospel of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ can be dangerous it can lead to adversity and affliction because we're told in Luke's gospel that it was while John was preaching the gospel John the Baptist was preaching the gospel, then that he went a step further as an extension of the gospel, and he confronted Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, and he accused him, rightly, of adultery with his sister-in-law. And this led then to his being put in prison. You see, the gospel is dangerous. Mark's gospel was probably written, probably in the 60s, probably in Rome, and it was written mainly for probably those hearers there who indeed were undergoing affliction and persecution, maybe even by Nero. The gospel, if we stand for it and proclaim it forthrightly, is a dangerous thing. At, at the same time, in the midst of these dangerous and gloomy and dark times, Jesus nevertheless 
preached the good news, and he brought light, and he won the victory. And that reminds us, no matter the threats that we face in preaching the gospel, God's plan will never, ever be thwarted. You see, the situation is this. John and Jesus' ministries overlapped. And Jesus, we know from John's gospel, had begun to become even more popular than John. And John was attracting attention from Herod the Tetrarch, and, and, and Herod was beginning to look for Jesus. And so he went into Galilee at this time, not because of fear, but because he was fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah had said. It was going to come in Galilee of the Gentiles, in the land of Naphtali and Zebulon, in the wave of the sea, that the light would dawn, and it would come upon those that were walking in the dark days. And he fulfilled that prophecy. He also was not fearful. If he had, he wouldn't have gone into Herod's own territory where he ruled. No, he went to fulfill the prophecy and to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And so we come to that focal passage today in verses 14 and 15, which we just mentioned a moment ago, that when John was taken captive, when he was the word is handed over, when he was put in prison, then Jesus went into Galilee doing what? proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel of God. And he said this, he said, the time has come, it is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is near, and there are two things that you must do as a consequence. You must repent and you must believe in the good news and the gospel. Preaching of the gospel is central to the New Testament. It, John preached it, he preached the gospel, it wasn't as complete as Jesus' gospel, but he preached the gospel of repentance. It was Jesus' foremost activity. We know that he healed. We know that he taught. He taught them in parables. He taught them in other teachings. But his foremost thing that he did, even beyond the miracles, was to preach. You know, there was an incident when Jesus retreated to pray, and we're told about it in Mark, the first chapter. And nobody could find him. They didn't know where he was. And then finally Peter ran him down. And he told him, don't you know that everybody's looking for you? And what was Jesus' response? It wasn't, let me go do some more healing. Let me go do some more teaching. He said, let's go to the nearby villages. Let's go somewhere else so that I can preach there also. This is the reason that I have come. You see, it was foremost in his ministry. It was one of the three reasons that he gave for calling his disciples, the 12 that he called around him. He, he gave three reasons so that they could be with him so that he could give them authority to cast out demons and that he could send them out to preach. We should never underestimate the power of proclaiming and the power of preaching. And folks, you know me. I'm not talking about what I'm doing in the pulpit only. I'm preaching, but when we go forth from here, each one of us calls to do what? We're to be carusos. That's the verb. We're to be proclaimers. Each one of us is called to go and proclaim. He says that the gospel must be preached throughout the world before the kingdom is finally consummated, and he gives us that task. We should never shrink any one of us from being proclaimers of the good news. It is important for us to do the healing ministry and to pray and to support others and to encourage them. It's important for us to do discipleship training and to do teaching. But we must be committed wherever we go in the workplace, at school, or wherever we are to be proclaimers by word and by deed. You see, there was a difference between John's preaching and, and Jesus' preaching. 
John preached a baptism of repentance. His purpose was to prepare the way, and his message was repent. Jesus took it a step further. He came not to prepare the way. He said, I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. He came to herald the good news, and the good news is this. I'm bringing in the kingdom. That's what this is all about. And his message was not just to repent. You hear what he said. Two imperatives twin together. Repent and what? Believe in the good news of God. He came preaching the gospel of God. It's a unique phrase in the, in the gospels and the synoptics. Paul uses it a few times, but it's unique in the life and ministry of Jesus what does it mean? What is the gospel of God? Well, it can, be, it can mean the gospel about God, or it can mean the gospel from God. And when you look at verse number 15, it's pretty obvious. It's the gospel that comes from God and is communicated through Jesus. What is this good news? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is near. That is the good news. And Jesus begins preaching. And he gives a three-point message then in verse 15. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom is near, and the consequence is that you're to do what? You're to repent and to believe in the good news. You see, the time is fulfilled. We know this isn't just a chronological thing in space and time. Most of you know that the word that is used there is kairos. It's not chronos. It's not just tick-tock time. It's not just the time on the watch. And kairos can mean a couple of things. It can mean the right time, the perfect time, the full time, the harvest time. I just said four things. <laughs> That's all one thing. You see, it's the right time. But it can also mean this, that there has been a long span of time that is coming to a conclusion and a fulfillment. So what's meant here? Both things. You see, this is God's right time. Just as he sent his beloved son, even though a different verb is used in Galatians 4, it means the same thing. The fulfillment of times, he sent his son to be born of a woman. This is Jesus, and he comes forward, and he says, now it's Kairos time. Now it is the fulfilled time. All of the time of the prophets is coming to a conclusion, you see, and this is a new age. You see, the old is finishing, and the new is beginning. Satan's rule is ending, and God's reign is beginning. John's prophecy and his preparing the way, that's over. I'm here. I am the way. God is launching the last phase of human history. You see, the old covenant is closing. That's what this kairos means. And the new covenant is opening. There is a renewed hope that I'm bringing out of the old covenant, fulfilling it in the new covenant. And, the, and God is about a divine reset in time. There is going to be now a new way of thinking, a new way of behaving, a new way of acting. But in fact, what it's going to do, ironically, is it's going to restore things the way God intended them to be in the very beginning. You see, the good news is the kingdom is coming. God's kingdom is near. The kingdom of God is a key New Testament concept. We know that. <clears throat> You know, sometimes it's called the kingdom of God, sometimes it's called the kingdom of heaven, and some theologians have tried to parse this in different ways and make a big distinction between the two. I don't think there's really much difference between the two. I think it's just different ways of saying the same thing. You see, this kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is a radical shift. It's a term that is never found in the Old Testament, but the New Testament is replete with it almost a hundred times. 
It's Jesus' major message in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He mentions it over 80 times, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and it summarizes Jesus' life. You see, he is the kingdom person. He is the kingdom prophet. He is announcing it. Here it is in verse number 15. He is the kingdom priest. He is about to redeem all of creation, all of history, all of God's kingdom, and shed his blood to pay for its inauguration. He is the kingdom king. He has been glorified, and we know that right now he is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and has authority over all of the cosmos, and we know that someday he's going to return as the what? King of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, he is about being the kingdom person. And the eventual purpose of this, as we've said, is to restore God's original intent for creation. As a result, in this kingdom of God, all of creation is going to exalt God as it should. All of nature will be in harmony under his dominion. And that's a better name, probably, than even kingdom, his dominion. It will be like a theocracy once again. God will be king, and his kingdom will be characterized by what? By righteousness and peace and justice, as we have seen from Isaiah's gospel prophecy. You see, the current situation of the kingdom of God is this. We know it. It's not a geophysical thing in space. You can't see the kingdom of God right now, but it has been inaugurated. Christ has begun it. What did he say just before he was crucified? My kingdom is not of this world. But it's about God's dominion from heaven and in heaven over earth. It's about his reign that has begun even now, his power and his sovereignty over all. There's not a thing that happens that is out of his control today. It's a spiritual realm right now. The kingdom is to be found in us and with us and amid us. It's found among those who believe and follow Christ in their hearts and minds and souls. This kingdom isn't established by what we do. I know we're to, br- to preach the kingdom, but we don't bring the kingdom in. I know the kingdom is not going to be consummated until the gospel is preached to all the world, and we're called to, to do that, but we don't bring the kingdom in. It is begun, and it is consummated, and it is fulfilled only in the person of Jesus Christ. The timing of it You've probably heard this before. It's the already kingdom. It has already begun, but it's at the same time the not yet kingdom. You see, Jesus has begun the kingdom, but it's not complete. It won't be complete until Maranatha. Even so, Lord, come until he comes. And in that future, there's going to be a cosmic kingdom that is not just spiritual. It will be physical. It will encompass all of creation, the kingdom of God will someday. It will be under, as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah, the prince of peace, and there will be no end to his kingdom, and the government will be upon his shoulder. It will be, as Daniel says, indestructible. It will be the only kingdom. He will put all other kingdoms aside, and it will be only his kingdom. And Daniel goes on to tell us then that it will be a universal kingdom, one where God is sovereign over all with an everlasting dominion and the Son of Man, and we know who that is, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man and the Son of God, will rule on his behalf. Jesus says that this kingdom is near. He proclaims the nearness of it, and in that we sense an urgency. 
You see, Jesus brought it near. He brought it to our very threshold, and it has penetrated our world spiritually. There's a sense of urgency in this. There's a sense of urgency in what he's preaching. It's imminent. We don't know when it's going to happen, but he's going to come again, and he's going to finish it. Any moment now, we know that. He said that nobody knows when it's going to be fulfilled. Not even he, only the Father knows. When you look at Mark's gospel, there's this sense of immediacy about the kingdom that runs throughout it. In Mark's gospel, the word immediately or at once occurs at least 40 times. You see, there is an urgency about the coming of this kingdom. And what does Jesus expect us to do? He expects us to proclaim it. Wherever we go to proclaim the kingdom is coming. And it's a positive thing. It also has a negative side, as we heard Yami read about the melting of all the universe. The good thing is there will be a new heaven and a new earth on the other side. What did he tell his disciples? He said, now, I want you to go and preach. And what did he tell them that he wanted them to preach? In Matthew, the 10th chapter, as he sends them out the first time, he says, I want you to preach that the kingdom is at hand. And what I want you to do is I don't want you to keep it secret. I want you to get up on the rooftops and I want you to shout it out. I want you to proclaim it. Folks, today the church does not do that. The people of God do not do that. We must, wherever we go, with a sense of urgency, proclaim the goodness of the coming of the kingdom of God. And then finally, he says, there's a twin imperative to repent and to believe. There's a new era that has been launched, and it demands a new response. There are twin imperatives that are inextricably linked together here. Paul restated it when the elders of Ephesus come and meet him at Miletus. He said, you know, my core message that I preached all of this time was very simple. I was solemnly testifying to both Jews and to Greeks this very simple message. Repentance toward God and faith and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Repentance toward God and faith in the good news. The word repentance, of course, we know means to change our mind. It's a pagan concept, and it's also a Jewish concept and a Christian concept. The pagan concept is that somehow we know that we must change things that we regret having done. That's the negative. But the Jewish tradition enriches this. It's not just regretting what we've done, but it's a return, a return back to covenant faithfulness, not just regretting that we have sinned against God, but returning to Him and being faithful in that covenant relationship. And you know the analogy that we use is it's an about, not just an about face, but it's a to, to the, actually to the front march. We were marching to the rear, we were marching in the wrong direction, and we then have a new direction, turning away from the old and turning to the new way. The modern English equivalent is unpopular today. The modern English equivalent simply means to convert. And that's very unpopular in our society, but that's what it is. You see, it involves a willful and sincere action, not just an attitude. You see, repentance, the scripture tells us, isn't just an emotional feeling. It's not just a guilt thing. No matter how much cancel culture tries to make everybody feel guilty, guilt is not enough. You see, John the Baptist's basic message points to this. He called for what? Bear fruit of repentance. Moral reform, change behavior that's accountable, the fruit of repentance. 
Only genuine repentance results in forgiveness. Without genuine repentance, there is no forgiveness. So when the 70-year-old man stood outside the gates of heaven, was his repentance genuine or was it just fear? It's not just remorse. It's not just a sense of guilt. You see, the world feels guilty about a lot of things. And the world would have us feel sorry about a lot of things. But worldly sorrow is not enough. Paul tells the Corinthians this. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, that is, the right kind of sorrow, produces repentance without regret. What does that suggest to you? Worldly sorrow repents, but it regrets it. It turns around and repeats its sinful behavior. But the sorrow of the world like that produces death, Paul says. You see, genuine repentance involves accountability. It involves accountability not just to each other, but accountability to God. You know, only God can forgive sin. We know that. The, the scribes said that to Jesus, and they were right. What they didn't know was that he was the Son of God. I know that we are told by Jesus to forgive others immediately so that our Father in heaven may forgive us. We can do that. What we can do is we can forgive the overt actions of sin, but folks, what we can never forgive is the moral affront to God. If you forgive somebody else that has offended you, you forgive their action against you, but you do not eradicate their sin, they must still be forgiven by the Father because they have affronted Him in their sin. You see, what we must do is we must sense that we have been alienated, not just from each other, but from God. And we are incapable of making amends. Only He can empower us to do so. You know, I think what that means is this. Repentance begins with following Him, as you heard in the skit this morning. Repentance begins by seeking God, not the other way around. Stop and think about that famous passage in Second Chronicles 7, you know, about, about, about Reformation and about revival. If my people who are called by my name and think about the sequence will do what? Humble themselves, and then what? And then pray, and then do what? Turn from their evil ways? No, what? Seek my face, and then turn from their evil ways. I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. You see, repentance really begins by seeking God, not the other way around. We don't love God because He loved us. We, 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 we do love God because He loved us. He doesn't love us because we love Him. He seeks us, and He beckons us to come to Him, and the attraction to come to him really needs to precede the guilt and the remorse of sin. You see, that's why people responded to Jesus the way that they did. You know, they knew that he cared. They, they were attracted to him because of his compassionate words and his miraculous works. He spoke with authority, that's true, but he also offered hope and goodness. And they knew somehow that he loved them. You see, that's attraction to God that should begin first, and then it causes us to repent. Godly repentance and forgiveness include trusting God and entering into a relationship with Him. And it's not just being forgiven once. It's not one walking the aisle thing, and then I, I repent of my sin, and then I go into heaven. It is a daily act of contrition. It is following Him in such a way that we walk the walk with Him 
and we ask Him to strengthen us. Not a single one of us is able to resist the temptations of sin after we first repent and to turn to Jesus Christ. We cannot do it without Him. We enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ and He walks with us and He strengthens us from day to day and enables us to continue to repent of the bad and to follow Him. You see, there's a positive dimension to this repentance. You know, the picture, I don't know, we live in a world of, of images and, and, and cartoon caricatures. When you, when you think of the idea of repentance, what picture comes to your mind? I, I have a picture of a, a, a shaggy beard, long-haired guy in a robe with a sign that says what? Repent. And, and that idea of repent, there, there is that to it. We live in dangerous times and there are consequences to sin and the end is coming, I know that. And there are consequences to sin. But there's this positive dimension. You see, the Lord beckons us to come to Him. He draws us by His love. The motivation for repentance should be the new way and the better way of following Him. Burying our old life so that He might raise us to walk in a new way of living. Jesus' call to repentance went beyond John's. John was a baptism of repentance. But Jesus says here, his last point is what? Don't just repent, also believe in the good news. You see, it's not just repentance from, it's faith in. And it's not just faith in, it's faith in the good news. So, what does this mean? You know, the believing is not just mental descent. We know that. We know that James tells us, you believe that God is one, that's fine, that's good, that's very good. But what? <laughs> the devils also believe and they shudder. It means more than mentally understanding. It means being persuaded to the point of trust where we're willing to be faithful to that concept of fidelity. The object of faith here, it's very interesting. It's a rather odd construction. It says believe not just the gospel, believe in the gospel. So we're to believe not just the message, what we hear, we're to believe in it and to trust in it. That phrase believe in is used about two dozen times in the New Testament. Here is the only place in the New Testament where that believe in is related to a neuter noun. Believe in the good news. The hint is this. The good news is not just words. Good, the good news is not just a message. The good news, when you look at believe in, wherever it is used elsewhere, it is always related to a person, and that person is either God himself or God's son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes him, know what? Believes in him shall have everlasting life. Paul repeats this to the Ephesians. He says, having believed in him, you see, you have the seal of eternal life. The implication here is when Jesus is saying, believe in the good news, he's saying, believe my message, okay? Believe that the kingdom is coming, but he means more than that. He means trust the one who brings the news. Trust the proclaimer who's fulfilling the message. Trust the author and the perfecter of your belief. And we know who Hebrews says that is. It's Jesus Christ. He is the author and he is the one that enables us to believe. So what is this, the good news that we're to believe in? Well, 
That's how the gospel of Mark begins. Look at verse number one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That can mean the gospel that comes from Jesus, and it does. But it can also mean the message about Jesus. The message from Jesus is the kingdom is coming, yes. The gospel of God's grace. And the message of that kingdom is that we can only enter the kingdom by God's grace, by believing. But this message is also about Jesus himself. I think what's being said here is, he is the good news. God sent his son to announce the kingdom. But he also sent his son to secure and to redeem the kingdom. Jesus himself is the good news. So summarizing the twofold imperative that are inextricably bound. You cannot just repent, you must believe in. Not just believe in, but must repent. We're to repent of our old way, the way of sin and death, and turn to God's new way of righteousness in his kingdom. And we're to believe in the good news, the message that came from Jesus Christ, and just as importantly, if not more, to trust in the one who proclaimed it. Now, how do we apply this? Let me, let me say this, I think, about repent and believe, the, the second of our imperatives we're covering in this series. You know, Jesus revealed many mysteries to his disciples. Do you remember what he said in John 4 when he told the parable about the sower? And they asked him, well, why do you speak in parables? And he said, I speak in parables because the secret of the kingdom of God, the secrets of the kingdom of God are given to you. They're not given to those that are not willing to listen. They're not given to those that are not willing to listen and obey. You know, Paul spoke about this later. He said, those secrets of the kingdom of God, he, he described as mysteries of the faith. Here this morning is one of those mysteries of the faith. This twin imperative, repent and believe in the good news. You see, the world doesn't get it. The world does not understand that. The world understands sorrow and guilt, but it does not understand being accountable to God in such a way that he enables us to obey him. You see, there's a great mystery about this twin command, and let me speak very briefly about this mystery. Forgiveness, forgiveness is not based on our sense of guilt, remorse, or shame. Forgiveness is not based on our sincerity or our good intentions. Our forgiveness from God is not based on personal merit or righteous works. Forgiveness from God is not based on our long-standing faithfulness. Forgiveness from God is not based on our human efforts or our perfection. Repentance does not unlock the kingdom of heaven's gates, no matter how many times we beseech on the outside. Belief on our part does not earn our place in God's kingdom. You see, folks, nobody is worthy. That sinner of 70 years was not worthy, and the person who considers himself or herself righteous in the eyes of God, no one is worthy. Repentance and eternal life has been purchased only by one thing, and that is by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And forgiveness can be given only by its application. Forgiveness and entry in the kingdom of God come only by what? God's grace. But it's not a cheap grace. You see, he still expects us to do what? 
We will not be granted forgiveness. We will not be granted entry into the Father's house. On the other hand, unless we have repented and we have believed in the one who brings the message of the kingdom, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's one of the great mysteries. We don't earn it, but we don't get into heaven without doing it. Repent and believe in the good news means repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, you call us o'er the tumult, over life's wild and restless sea. Day by day, your voice invites us. Christian, follow me. Our prayer is this morning in the tumult of life and the storm ways of, of everyday life, the temptations of life, which are so difficult to resist, that we will make the commitment to repent and to follow your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.